And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. He's a savvy baseball lifer, a new age philosopher and motivator. Every politician and executive should study. I sat down with Joe Madden, the manager of the world champion Chicago Cubs the other day at their spring training home in Mesa, Arizona, to hear what he's thinking as the Cubs prepare for another campaign. One other thing. Instead of our usual Monday show, we'll have a special episode of The Axe Files coming your way this weekend. We're bringing the podcast to TV with an episode airing Saturday night on CNN with Senator John McCain. We'll release the full conversation as a podcast for you that evening. I hope you'll tune in Saturday, and we'll be back to our regular podcast schedule later next week. Joe Madden, great to be with you down here in sunny Mesa as you try and start climbing that hill again. Absolutely. Uh, Everybody thinks of you as sort of this new age guy, data and all of that, and we'll get into that. Mm -hmm. But I want to ask you about that cap that you carried around with you, uh, that old angel's cap that you carried around with you. It's in that bag right over there right now. Yeah. Tell me about that. Well, that's my dad's cap. Uh, My dad was a plumber. And my dad always wore a hat. And so when I was with the Angels, of course, he had all the different Angel caps during my time there. But this one in particular, he had worn right up to the point where he passed away. So when he did die, I, I, went, I was back home, of course, and this was down in the shop. The shop would be the plumbing shop. He had this little corner. You grew up above the plumbing oh, shop. I did, shop. but my mom still lives up there above the shop. Uh, so my, this hat was in the corner, in that little corner, the dirty corner. Like it's a dirty... <laughs> it's a dirty uh, shop. It's uh, it's plumbing. It's uh, uh, there's bins full of uh, fittings, copper fittings, and uh, machines to cut pipe, etc. And you have to sweep it up as, as often as you possibly can. There's a two car garage right there. We played basketball when they um, my dad and Michael's got back from work. So my hats, his hats in that corner. Grabbed it. I wanted that hat. So it's been it's been two uh, two World Series now three actually but two as winners in two thousand and two it was in the dugout uh, when the Angels won the World Series I popped it underneath my books in the corner and then in uh, this last year twenty sixteen when things were uh, kind of tough I went upstairs during that rain delay propped it in the back of my um, pants underneath the belt and underneath my hoodie tapping that thing the whole time <laughs> during that last inning let's go buddy let's go. And then eventually put it on at the end of the game. So that hat is that goes with me everywhere. I'm a backpack kind of a guy, so it makes it very easy to uh, bring it around in that. In my so backpack. it's not really, it's not just the hat that goes with you, but your dad goes with oh, you. Oh, it's my dad. It's not my hat. I mean, yeah. I mean the hat. Is, it is my dad. My dad was he uh, was always there for us. Uh, the 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 most simple man and real patient man. Uh, talented. I mean he. He could have done anything. He was a plumber, but he could have been a, an electrician, a carpenter, a auto mechanic. You didn't have to pay for anything. I mean, my dad was able to fix anything uh, back in the day. And he was, I guess he was the first kid on his block with a handy-andy tool set. That's what <laughs> I've been told. He didn't even have a glove. I guess he had a handy-andy. He was fixing neighbor's stuff uh, down on P Street in Hazleton back in the day. It's just who he was. And uh, so, yeah, he's, he's with me constantly. Tell me about Hazleton, Pennsylvania, <clears throat> and growing up there. What kind of town is yeah Hazelton down the road from Scranton right Scranton Wilkes-Barre it's a coal mining town anthracite coals as opposed to bituminous and it's uh, northeastern Pennsylvania um, 
Well, growing up there in that time was it was uh, prolific. It was uh, coal was at its uh, height at that point, and uh, everybody was employed. I think thirty five to forty thousand folks in the city at that time. Um, really prosperous and fun. I mean, everybody um, everybody was involved. Uh, uh, you were. I went to parochial school. I was taught by the nuns. Uh, I had a really large family. I think my dad, twelve brothers and sisters. My mom, ten or eleven. I can't remember. But uh, this large immediate family, large even larger extended family, and then uh, really influenced by nuns, teachers, mentors. Feels like you'd be a handful for the nuns. I, I was. I, well, I was, and I was like, I was that kid that uh, I try to cooperate, and I would clean the blackboards, and you know, uh, I, uh, I was one of those kids that passed out the chocolate milk at ten o'clock. <laughs> uh, you know, I'd go down and have to put it in, in little bins, and you'd pass it out. So I was actually good with the nuns, uh, but it was a great place to grow up. Um, my point was to be like. You talk about accountability. I mean, not just to your your family and your aunts and uncles, but gosh, if you're walking down the street and you're doing anything wrong, somebody knew your pop, and you're going to get in trouble for that. So you were raised by everybody, uh, and I've often said it was the best place in the world to grow up. Uh, ethnic town. Yeah. Your dad was Italian, mm-hmm. and your mom was Polish. Correct. Is Polish. Right. Beanie, Beanie's still around. Beanie's um, 84. Beanie's full-blooded Polish. My dad was full-blooded Italian. And um, how about... My mom lives on the same block that she grew up. I mean, her house where she grew up with all my grandparents and her sisters and brothers is a block from where she lives in our apartment right now. She lives on the Polish border. St. Stanislaus Church is right up the street. My dad was Our Lady of Grace. So everything was sectioned off, like you're saying. The whole city was ethnically sectioned for purposes of language and business, etc. So, yeah, my mom was on the, on the, on the line between Polak and Italian. <laughs> And uh, and my third base luncheonette, where she still she where she retired last year, but the base was a half a block from her house and a half a block from my house. It was like right in between. So Beanie pretty much has lived in this block for eighty four years. So Chicago must have been pretty familiar to you when you came to town. That's what I said. I mean, it's I, I you go to Chicago and uh, it is it's a larger version of Hazelton. Um, I felt very comfortable being there quickly just by the people that I met, the conversations that I had. It was it was really familiar. Uh, the food, um, just everything about it was very, very – even the tradition of the Cubs, uh, the religious nature of sports, yeah. you know, the, the the conversations that are had, all that stuff was really familiar to me. So I was comfortable. You uh, mm-hmm. – you, sports just came naturally to you when mm-hmm. you were a kid? They did. I was I was actually pretty good at, at all sports as a kid. My my best sport was football, no question. And if my dad were still alive, regardless of the Cubs winning the World Series or not, he's pissed, year, right? He'd you... first tell you about me not playing football anymore at Lafayette College. That's the first thing that would come out of his mouth. But you know, it's interesting to me. Mm-hmm. You uh, you played what you would call the two kind of uh, <clears throat> leadership positions. You were a catcher yeah. in baseball. You were a quarterback in yeah. football. Uh, why'd you gravitate to those? Spots? Do you, was it? Do you like playing that kind of organizational role? Good arm. I had a good arm, and so as a, as in football, they wanted me to be a quarterback. I started out the first two games as a halfback for the State Trooper Eagles. Our quarterback had a tough game, so all of a sudden I was a quarterback by game three of my ten-year-old uh, <laughs> season, and I was a quarterback ever from that moment on. I was actually a shortstop and a pitcher in in high school and in, in little league and uh. all that kind of stuff. When I went to college. I was pitching. We're playing in Florida, actually Tampa, and actually like half a mile from where I live right now. It's like really crazy. It happened in Tampa. That way. Yeah. In Tampa. 
And so I volunteered to catch because our catching wasn't good. So I, we're playing the Kansas City Royals Baseball Academy in Sarasota, a professional team. I had not caught since I was 12 in Little League. I volunteered the next day I'm catching against the Royals Academy in Sarasota. And that's how I became a catcher. And uh, tell that story about uh, why you chose uh, baseball over football. Because you went to college, as you yeah. mentioned, on a football scholarship. You were you the first one to go to college? Uh, yes, among my group, I was. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in my immediate family, my dad, none of his brothers and sisters, my mom, sister did, and my aunt Ted had gone to. Um, she was a nurse, but yeah, that what had happened was I go to Lafayette on a football deal. Actually, you know, it wasn't a scholar. It was a financial need. Financial aid had to be met. Uh, so I got like a Lafayette at that time was sixteen thousand bucks for four years. It was four thousand annually. So I go there to play football, and our football fields are at Metzger Field, which is outside of town, which is right next to the baseball field. So I'm out there doing fall uh, football, and I hear crack, crack, crack in September. Guys are playing baseball like two fields over, and I really, I'm like, that's all I can hear. You mean you can play baseball in September and October here? That really excited me. So I played my freshman year at Lafayette. We did really well. I did well. And I was supposed to be the starter on the varsity the next year, my sophomore year. And I went, to, I went back there uh, for fall practice in August. I had to run like 1040s and a six-minute mile. I was throw-up sick after that because <laughs> I had not worked out for it all summer. And then the next day, first day, I went out with my Volvo packed, went and saw Coach Sarah, said, I'm, I don't want to play football anymore. And I had to go see Coach Neil Putnam, which is really difficult when you're like 19 or 20 years of age to say, I'm retiring. And <laughs> as I didn't, I couldn't use the word quit. And so I did. I said, I'm retiring because I want to play baseball. And really, the allure, honestly, of the crack of the bat in September. I mean, if I had gone to a different college to play football and the baseball field wasn't right there in the fall, I might have played football for three or four years. And uh, <clears throat> obviously, you, you, you did well in, at baseball. Uh, in college, uh, but you were good, but not quite good enough. Yeah, I mean, I I, uh, I never got drafted. I um, I signed out of uh, Boulder, Colorado in 1975, a part of the Boulder Collegians. We won a national championship. Game over, I get signed by the California Angels. I go to camp. I actually had a couple of really good years in the minor leagues, but... You know, I was not considered that guy, and after three years, they released me. I, you know, of course, you always think that you're better than you actually are, but also, this is no lie, the second year I'm playing, I'm like 22, Lloyd Christopher, great scout, Lloyd comes up to me one day in Visalia and asks me, when are you going to stop playing and start coaching? 22, 23, that blew me up. I was like really upset with Lloyd, great scout. and But even he recognized that in me when I was 23 years of age, and then I'm out by the time I'm 25, 26. I'm managing rookie ball. By the time I'm 27, I'm a scout. So apparently I was not good enough, but somebody recognized other qualities in me. Yeah, and you spent 30 years in yeah. the Angels organization. I did. What uh, you, you told me once that uh, you made yeah. all your mistakes uh, along the way, which prepared you for this. Yeah. What what. What what did you learn? And I mean, you did like every job there was to do. I did. Um, what I learned is what not to do. Um, I'll give you a great example. I was managing Midland, Texas, 86, 87, something like that. 85, 86, one of those two years. And I was upset with my team. I thought, um, 
I just, just, we weren't playing well. I got angry as opposed to really recognizing the situation and trying to fix it. I got angry, so I, I went out to a local a newsstand and I bought a bunch of newspapers from different parts of the country, took out the classified ads of, of each paper, like San Antonio, Texas, uh, maybe Washington, D.C., maybe Seattle. And I put the classified ads all over the clubhouse and even on the back of the bathroom stalls. And I told the guys above the urinals, listen, check out these classified ads because if you don't start playing like you should or can, these are your options. I thought it was motivational. It was like probably the worst thing anybody's ever done in their life. So I got, I got angry. I got angry, which you should never do. Um, when things are going right, it's not about getting angry. How do we fix this? And so I messed up badly there. And eventually, how quickly did you realize that? Um, probably a year or so after that, because right after that, I became a roving instructor. I was in charge of the minor league system on the field. I was the coordinator, and I was roving to each city. And I was the hitting coach and coordinator and the catching coordinator. And I'm watching different guys operate, different managers, coaches, etc., and talking to players. Players from different levels, like A-ball all the way through AAA and even the big leagues, I got to go to the big leagues. So I, I learned that was an inappropriate way to deal with uh, young men. And you, you, there was another uh, instance in which you find, you said you find some of oh, them, yeah. and uh, that didn't sit well with them either. I, well, that same two years in Midland, Texas, uh, the one they were playing in Arkansas, Little Rock, and I didn't like our effort. So I called Billy Bavese after the game, and I said, I want to find everybody a day's pay because they did not show up tonight, including that group that was didn't even get in the game. So like other starting pitchers, bullpen guys, guys on the bench also got fined a day's pay. And Billy was okay. Billy did it for me or with for, for us. Wives, girlfriends, agents at that time, <laughs> everybody absolutely hated me because a day's pay is pretty large to a, a double-A baseball player. Again, something I would never do again. I, I, I have not fined anybody in years except maybe a bottle of wine. Um, when I was with the, with the Devil Rays, just trying to get points across there, guys just making mental mistakes, so we would go with the bottle of wine. But I have not actually taken anybody's money as, as a manager uh, since that point, it was really a bad move. Do they play better after you do? No, that? of course not. It, it, it makes it. There's nothing. There's there's no real uh, positive uh, uh, reinforcement to be gained from that. I'd much prefer con- uh, conversation. Now, pulling somebody out of a game, I've done that. Now, I think that's much more pertinent. Bob Clear, my mentor, used to argue with me: take their money, don't take them out of the game because it can lose a game. But I don't know. I think, I think um, long haul. Uh, by taking away from them what they want to do, meaning you can't play, you're going to sit today. I think that's more impactful to a young player than trying to grab like 50 bucks or 100 bucks out of their pocket. So eventually the thing I learned was like if a guy's really not putting the effort that I thought was appropriate, and you got to be careful with that. That's another story completely that when you start challenging somebody's effort. But anyway, I, I got away from that more conversational, and then if you really don't want to do this, let's sit down for a bit. You you uh, You – were with the Angels under, I guess, five different managers or something like that. <clears throat> quite, right. quite a few. Uh, did you see? Did you learn from their mistakes as well? Absolutely, um, you do. I mean, and we often talk about, and you've been in the same business or you know similar situations. You obviously, you learn from the good ones. Obviously, you do. But I think I've learned more from the bad ones, uh, things that I would never want to do, and. Uh, that really was very impactful to me. What you see here now with the Cubs, what I did with with the Rays, and whether it's um, a themed road trips or the fact that there, there's a real lack of rules within our 
clubhouse because I believe in the individual and freedoms, and then you're going to get greater respect and discipline in return. That's all the residue of me watching micromanagers uh, operate and the reaction by the players. Again, when you're a rover and you're behind the scenes, you're, everybody really confides in you a lot conversationally, and that's what I'm there for, to be to, to, mm-hmm. to listen. And so you hear things, and if you're a good listener, you're going to learn what really turns a player off or what can motivate a player. So all this stuff, I, 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 was, I, I think I am a good listener. And I think at that time, listening to players and, and coaches and other people that really did not like the leader at that time, um, I learned. I learned a lot from those moments. So I think uh, I was very grateful that I was not a manager anymore, that I did this other stuff before I became a manager again and saw so many different methods that I think now I'm able to incorporate the best of all those guys. You uh, you had a stint or two as uh, interim manager yep. <clears throat> with the Angels, but you you were passed over. You 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 did you interviewed with a number of teams. Yep. Theo interviewed you yep. in Boston. Uh, did you did you have faith that someday this thing was going to happen for you? I totally believed it. Never never did not believe that it would happen. Um, it was just a matter of the right time. You know when it happened with the Angels originally, uh, Marcel left. I was interviewed by Billy Babasi when TC, Terry Collins, got the job. Terry had had experience in the big leagues. I had not. Billy and I were like such good friends. It was, pro- it was definitely the right thing for him to do to not hire me. And then in 2000, uh, Soch interviews for the um, Angel job, and uh, Bill Stoneham is the GM. And Stoney, again, was looking for more experience. Now, Soch had not managed in the big leagues or even coached, I don't, I don't think, but had played there. And again, I, I still think he made the right decision. Stoney did. Uh, with Soch over me. And I could keep telling you on and on. I mean, I thought Theo did the right thing with Tito over me. And uh, I withdrew from the Diamondback position. I interviewed for the Diamondbacks. And I think I had a shot there. But uh, there was family situations going on that I, that I felt better with withdrawing from. And then Seattle, again, was Billy Bavese again. And then he hired Hargrove. And a lot of that was the ownership wanting somebody with more experience. And so that might have been okay. But I think that the overarching philosophy from the ownership group kept me out of that. The one I would have been upset about had I not gotten was was the Devil Rays mm-hmm. because that was perfect. I thought I've always wanted to be a part of a a, um, a new franchise. Uh, Why? Because it, you know, obviously they were pretty bad when you took over. Absolutely, and that was perfect because then I thought I had a better opportunity to incorporate or bring all the things that I had learned to like a clean slate. The Yankees have had a tradition. The Red Sox had a tradition. All these teams had, came in with tradition and, and an established method of doing things. The Devil Race had none of that. So, and I felt pretty good about my methods, the things that I've been taught as an angel. And so I thought to get a uh, expansion kind of, even though they weren't literally expansion at the moment, they were, the Devil Race were. And I thought that clean slate kept it wide open for me because a lot of things I like to do, I thought I was taught well. And I walked into that place, and with the you know with Stu and Andrew, and um, Andrew Friedman, Andrew Friedman, and another the young, Dodger. yeah, sort of Matt Silverman. There was data like, oriented, yeah, guy. very very aligned uh, with them in regards to data. But then they did dig my old uh, school, old world styles of teaching the game, also. So it was a pretty good marriage. I want to ask you about uh, about data. Mm-hmm. Um, you, when you were traveling around the minor leagues, you carried a computer around with you. Pretty unusual at the time. Mm-hmm. Why, why did you do that? Well, I just uh, well, first of all, I did it from an organizational perspective. I, I was an avid note taker keeper, so anytime I worked with David Axelrod, I would write 
exactly what we spoke about on the date, where it was. I'm going to have to be careful about what yeah, I exactly, say. Exactly. This is all going to my laptop, back <laughs> on my iPad now. Uh, but I would, I would write down everything I talked to you about because I wouldn't see it maybe for a month or two. Then I would recapture my notes before we, w- we would work on our hitting again. So I would be right on top because I always thought language was really important. In other words, in, in other words I, I wanted to say to you exactly what I had said the last time if I thought it worked. I did not want to come back to you forgetting what I had said before. So I wanted the computer to become an avid note keeper. I didn't really understand the concept of data and the, and the pertinency at that point. I did a, a very rudimentary method. I used to take stat sheets. They were, they were just like they are today. And I would look at them, and right away, as a hitting coach, I'd go to your walks, your strikeouts, and your on-base percentage. I never looked at batting average back then, even then. And I would talk to my guys about their walks versus their strikeouts, having their strike zone organized on base percentage, and that would mean would tell me that you did have your strike zone organized if it was a good number. So that's how I began with data, and then I got into early 90s into the big leagues, and then it became a thicker uh, sheet of stats. And from that, I started to generate more stuff on my own. So the computer was uh, primarily note-taking. Then it became a way to chart defense which me and Bobby Knopp worked in unison getting that done. And then eventually it became information numerically that we could, that I could post and give to the manager. Listen, man, it used to take me every before every series, three-game series on it. Like, so he starts on a Monday. I'd get into that building at noon. By 5 o'clock, maybe I'd have everything done to present to the players before that game because I presented everything. I presented the, the – This was when you were the angel. Yeah, this mm-hmm. was like middle, like 95, 96 – I organized a day. I did all the work for the day in spring training and every day during the season regarding the, the layout. And then the first game of each series, <laughs> I did all – including like scanning documents, scanning stuff, popping, popping them into one page, and then trying to condense information to distribute it for the players. So that's, what, that's where I learned my chops. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back with Joe Madden. When you got to Tampa, Andrew Friedman, like Theo Epstein, who uh, runs the Cubs, uh, was a young uh, guy who was deeply into uh, data. Right. How did you guys uh, meld on that? And, and how, wh- how much deeper did you go uh, with, with data there? Much. Um, and we, 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 we meshed really well with all of that because I was, I was thirsty for it. Um, because I had already had my, like I said, all this stuff I had been doing, I gave it to them. This is what I liked. This is what I liked during the course of the game. And a lot of the stuff they built there were off the thoughts that I had, plus the thoughts that they had, obviously. The beauty of that, of the data was at that time, if you had a, a, a thought, you could present it to the data guys and they'd come back and they'd, they'd put it on a piece of paper for you that would be pertinent and, and made sense and was dug up. I thought you mean like an idea about Yeah. Um, Gosh, I wish I could, um, off the top of my head, the thought would be, um, for example, uh, just like uh, when a pitcher is struggling or a hitter is struggling, uh, the pitcher struggling as an example, uh, what are his first pitch strikes like? Has he been efficient with that? What does he do on the 1-1 count? Show me. Uh, Fastball usage over changeup usage. What is he doing? Show me. Uh, hitting from a hitting perspective, expanding a strike zone, what counts? What, what kind of pitch? Where is he expanding a strike zone? And all this information could really be a wonderful teaching tool uh, more than just physical mechanics. Now, when it came to the game, what we did was we, we incorporated into one number 
all kinds of information into one number, like the batting average being inefficient regarding mm-hmm. describing you as a hitter, but your on-base percentage, uh, velocity ball off the bat, your um, sense uh, sensitivity to velocity, how good of a breaking ball hitter are you, do you expand, do you expand up, do you expand down, do you expand away versus that pitcher. All this stuff can be baked into one number. So these are the kind of in, the kind of things we started talking about so that when I get that card you see in my back pocket, a lot of this stuff that I just talked about is reduced into one number that is pertinent versus that pitcher that day or our hitter versus that pitcher that day. So all the all the folks, the, the old school folks that ran away from that, re- right down to shifts. I mean, shifts were really, really frowned upon back then also. That's why moving the Rays... Play, moving players around. Exactly. That's why, Defensively. That's, that's why the Rays were so good then is because we were ahead of the curve with a lot of this stuff. Everybody was like poo-pooing it and kind of making fun of us while we had our shortstop on the other side of second base taking line... Our, our, our motto was to catch line drives. I mean, I could go on and on about it. If I had my card in front of me specifically, <laughs> I'd give you all this stuff, but... All of this intel was in the back pocket, so the the morphing of all of these numbers into old school methods, I thought, was the school of what's happening now. I think that was Flip Wilson that talked about that back in the day. So if you could really, I mean, the group the group that frowns upon uh, stuff that they don't understand and and mock what they don't understand, you're really missing out. So, I, but I also believe you don't want to become an extremist. In either situation, because uh, that could also injure you, whether you're just old school or you're just all about uh, data, and you could talk about politics in the same way. Well, there's no yeah, doubt about exactly. it. I think we saw an example of yeah. that, actually, in the last election, exactly. where there was a over-reliance on data and not enough reliance on sort of just old school getting a sense of where people were and w- how they were thinking and how they were relating to these candidates. Take the, take the Cubs after the, the lead went away. The rain came down. The boys got together in a in a room in, in Game Club, Seven of the World in the Game Series. Seven of the World Series. Our guys got together, came out entirely different uh, looks on their faces, and we go out, we win the game. And yeah, there's really, no data for that. No math. There's no math involved. That's all about the heartbeat. That's yeah. about your heartbeat, and that's the point where when we're, where we continue to move forward in a sense, and we are. And I'm all about numbers, but please don't ever forget about the heartbeat. It's about human beings. It's about character. It's about makeup. It's about the ability to stay in the present tense and think right now. So don't be confused by all of this. I mean, numbers are great, and numbers are normally um, extracted in a very calm uh, moment uh, mm-hmm. in a room, uh, air conditioning <laughs> yes. humming in the background, maybe yes. some music going on, whatever it might be. <laughs> But all of a sudden, you go out there in a the 10th inning, and you know things are flying all over the place. And it, you know, you had a plan going on. The plan got blown up, and all of a sudden, you could talk about generals and 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 people in in uh, army or navy or whatever in military. And when you know you got this wonderful plan going on, all of a sudden it gets boom, it's it's gone. So you have to make adjustments on the fly, and that's where please don't forget the heartbeat. You in in Tampa, you know, with Theo, when I asked Theo, why did you pick? Uh, Francona mm-hmm. over Madden. Mm-hmm. He said, I, "I love Joe, but I had a bunch of veterans. I didn't know how they would take yeah. to his style of managing." When you mm-hmm. went to Tampa, you had a bunch of young guys. Uh, how important was that? Because you ended up taking a team that sucked, yep. and we, uh, going to the playoffs four times. You mm-hmm. went to the World Series. Uh, could you have done that with a veteran team? I, I think I, I do believe I could have because I mean I, I was. I was aware. I got good self-awareness. I think I, w- I would have been aware when to maybe spring something out there or not. Um, 
But like I said before, I mean, having an expansion group like this clean slate with no preconceived notions, not this uh, provincial town and, you know, all the, the, the sports writers and looking at me like with, what's he, you know, with the wine rack in his office and all this other crap. <laughs> I mean, it would have been very, although maybe wine rack in the office in Boston would have gone over actually pretty well. <laughs> so I, I mean, all this. Probably a beer rack. It, maybe, right. Yeah. You know, like some kind of uh, Sam Adams. Um, <laughs> you know, but all this. I'm grateful that I got the chance to do it. Like I said, if I did not get the job in Tampa Bay, yeah. that would have been the first time I'd have been absolutely disappointed that I did not get a job that I had interviewed for. But you didn't stay. What? Uh, and you you took <clears throat> advantage of an out in your contract, yeah. and you took the job in Chicago. What about Chicago attracted you? Um, well, you know, Theo and Jed, uh, the city itself, Joe the Epstein, ballpark. Yeah. Jed Hoyer, yeah. Well, the I mean, general Here's manager. the other thing. In 2014 um, – the race played uh, the Cubs in Chicago. I had never been to Wrigley, ever. I had only ridden all my, your years in baseball. Huh? I only ridden my bicycle around the streets. I was there with the Angels once, early two thousands. I took my bike and I went north on Lakeshore. Then I ended up. I said, "Where's Wrigley? so the Angels were in to play the White Sox? Is that it? Right. Yeah. I was playing. The so White you Sox. weren't at Wrigley. No, yeah. I was not at Wrigley. So I, very good. I should explain myself better. <laughs> so I, I go up. You the explain street. yourself yeah. well, okay. Joe. Don't worry about it. Um, so I go up there and I do a, a circle around the ballpark. This place is pretty cool. And then in 2014, the the Rays go there to play the Cubs in late in the season. I said, so we get there. And first of all, I mean, I was always uh, uh, enamored by the fact that this ballpark's in a neighborhood. And so you get there, and the bus is weaving its way in there. And I don't even know how to get there, but it's so cool. Buses driving through, like, normal streets, very narrow, navigating. And all of a sudden, boom, there's the ballpark. There's Wrigley. And then the bu- bus parks, and you walk in that long um, aisle there, the hallway there whatever to get to the clubhouse got in the clubhouse put my bag down immediately went down i wanted to sit in that dugout and see the ivy first thing i did and i said wow it did not disappoint and and actually it's another one of those surrealistic moments where um it was it was the same but different and it it really made a a strong impression on me the first moment and i kept on isn't this the the best isn't this the greatest i'm telling people this during the course of that series i had to go out and make a, a pitching change and it was a day game, of course, and uh, I'm walking back to the dugout. And I said to myself, take your time and check this out. And I remember walking off, and again, th- this realistic moment. I thought it was like in a scene from Gladiator, like that uh, the <laughs> computer enhanced. Because you see the people in the stands, the white lattice on the, um, on the light standards, and the sky was perfectly blue with almost like Simpson clouds. Uh, all over the place, and I thought, this is, like, unbelievable. So that was my first impression of Wrigley Field. So, I mean, yes, that mean going to the Cubs, that was in the back of my mind, researching their players. I was really impressed with the team on the field that year also, even though they had not did not have a good record. I liked a lot of the attitude of the guys. I can see that coming. I liked that they played hard, and then you look at what was coming after that. So there were so many reasons. And then the city. I mean, listen, when you're a visiting player – you always look on the calendar to see when we go into Chicago. And being with the with the Rays and even the Angels before that, we used to go maybe just once a year, sometimes twice. And that always bummed me out that it was always a one-city, uh, one-time trip. When you came there, uh, this was mm. considered sort of the turning point. Everybody said, well, they're bringing in Joe Madden. He's been really successful in Tampa. Now they're going after it. Now they're mm. going after that World Series. And you were asked about it, and that's when <clears> you uh, – Blurred it. <laughs> you, you said uh, that your operative philosophy was uh, never let the pressure exceed the pleasure. Right. So explain that. Yeah, I mean, it's 
you got to put yourself in your six-year-old body. You know, uh, when you're playing junior little league on the Cal field on 17th Street, and um, you're facing a curveball for the very first time, and had no clue what that was supposed to be all about. <laughs> but I knew when I was six, I wanted to play in the big leagues. I knew that, absolutely knew that. So I never got a chance to play in the big leagues. I got a chance to play in the minor leagues. Got a chance to coach in the major leagues. Then I become a manager in the big leagues. You've wanted to do this since you're six. So why would you ever, uh, ever extract or subtract the pleasure of that moment for the whatever you want to perceive as stress, pressure? Uh, you know, a lot of these people walk into these these clubhouses, and again, this is what I've learned with a negative attitude. Really, I mean, this is what you've always wanted to do. This is like this is the epitome of sport, and then to do it, I was just going to say at Wrigley Field. Why would you ever not enjoy that moment? The moment you stop enjoying that moment is the time you really do need to say, I'm done, I'll see you, you hang it up, et cetera, et cetera. Because for me, the word pressure is an absolute positive. The word expectations, one of the most positive words ever can be applied to what you're doing. So never permit the pressure to exceed the pleasure because if you wanted to do it since you're six and don't enjoy it, you're a fool. You know, when I heard you say that, it reminded me of the first meeting we ever had when Obama decided to run for president we assembled like a very small group of people that were his team at that point and he had his he had different a few rules very few but the last one was uh, let's have fun he said you know this is a deadly serious thing running for president of the united Mm -hmm. states he said but what a privilege to be able to do it and he said we we ought there ought to be joy in the pursuit and it made all the difference, really, especially, you know, you, you hit your highs and lows. Of course. And just to remember that and to be able to laugh even when – which you seem to promote. Yeah. The other thing that you said <laughs> that struck me was you have to be a little crazy to be successful. Absolutely. Uh, and some of the some of the stuff you did you do seems a little batshit crazy, right? Right. right. So uh, ex- And I take that as an extreme compliment. I, I do. I that. love it, yeah. man. I love it. But the <clears throat> the uh, the uh, onesie party yeah. flying yeah. back from the West Coast on a long after West a no hitter. After a no hitter yes. that for, for timing. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, back in uh, two thousand and fifteen Arietta pitches a no hitter. Right. You guys are in pajamas uh, on the way back, right. petting zoos, right. bringing in petting zoos, uh, <clears throat> American Legion Week. Explain one of my that one. Things. Yes, go ahead. American Explain Legion. Okay, American Legion Week. We'll start right there. Um, when we played, when you played baseball um, in the summertime, when you're what, 15, 16, 17, 18 years of age, you play American Legion ball back in Hazleton. You never took BP. You never got there at 3 o'clock for a 6 o'clock game that night. You worked all day. I was a fence installer. I was worked on the playground. And you would show up and you would play. And you'd play well. You'd get hits. You'd make plays. You'd pitch good by just showing up and playing the game. So we, I mean, we don't take batting practice a lot. I want my guys showing up to the ballpark later. We do. This is way overkill here in the major leagues. Guys work um, way too uh, long. Uh, physically, that I think eventually has points of diminishing returns setting in. So It's a long season, too. Absolutely. So during American Legion Week, I want you showing up later. I want no pregame. I want Just you to. In August. It yeah, comes in August, August which is tough. Mid-August. Mid-August. Yeah. I always like mid-August. So you, do, you declare American Legion Week. So <laughs> show up later. Kick the bench, shake hands, play the game, just like you did when you were a kid. And I promise you, you could still be very successful. 
just mentioned it's a long season. I mean, I think that the next real panacea regarding success in, in Major League Baseball is going to be the word rest. Everybody's looking for data, information, uh, you know, whatever, studying your swing, practice ground balls. No, come later. Take some. Take take a break. Don't be out there as long. Be fresher physically. Your mind's going to be fresher. I mean, Lombardi nailed it when he said fatigue makes cowards out of all of us. He nailed it. Absolutely nailed it. The more tired you are, the less effective you always are going to be. That's where hitters chase pitches out of the zone. That's where pitchers can't execute that fastball slider down and away. They're tired. They're physically and mentally tired. Take a break. American Legion Week. You, uh, <clears throat> you yourself seem to be able to get away mm-hmm. from all of this. I mean, you seem to p- put a premium on on that. Yeah. You know, you get in your RV, you, mm-hmm. you, and even in Chicago, I guess you get on your bike and you mm-hmm. you you bike around. I mean, how do you detach from all of that? Starts in the morning with meditation. I like to meditate for twenty minutes in the morning. Um, if I could do it at least five days out of the week, at least five, I'm, I feel so much better, uh, so much clearer. Day goes in. What I, I meditate on, I try to, to try to manifest mentally in the morning what's going to project what's going to happen later on in that day whether it's uh you, you used the word joy earlier i just i just meditate on the word joy or courage or fearlessness or um process i meditate on things like that it's crazy how whatever you meditate on in the morning uh transpires during the course of the day in a positive way i also meditate on my family you know the good for my family um i meditate on loved ones that are no longer here and, and think about them. So it takes 20 minutes in the morning, I swear, it's, and you're breathing. Mm-hmm. It's all about breathing. And I, I think this is something, you know, we teach math, and I'm all about math uh, in school. We teach even more about English uh, and, and literature and reading. But I really believe we should, there's certain things we should teach in school, i.e. Uh, meditation and i.e. debate club, and, and teaching kids to be able to think on their feet, project what they think. I think if you want to teach a kid to uh, go out and get a good job after he graduates, teach him how to project to the potential employee when he stands or sits on his chair or stands on his feet and, and attempts to tell somebody else what he's thinking. Teach him that uh, because all this other stuff, yeah, this all this other stuff will take care of itself. But these are the kind of things that I think are pertinent. So, For life. The, absolutely. So mm-hmm. when it comes to this game, we could lose a tough game, man, and I mean a real tough game. I have a rule. Uh, win hard for 30 minutes, lose hard for 30 minutes, and move on to the next day. Honestly, yes, yeah, sometimes it takes longer than 30. It does t- on, in a loss, never for a win. Um, but I believe if you could if you could start out that morning more slowly and get your thoughts together, the day has a much better chance of playing out properly. You guys do that here. I, I remember yeah. uh, being told that you guys start with meditation in the morning for players who want to do it. Correct. Then Pilates, yoga. Correct. Yeah, yeah. It's just a better way. It's just a better way. And for that group, again, mocks what you we 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 mock what we don't understand. So the group that poo poos that doesn't understand. You've never tried it, so you stop. Um, I really challenge anybody that's never done that that has a hard time with the morning or the day in general. Try this. Try this method in the morning, and I, I really. I could almost promise positive results are going to occur. Len Casper, your yeah. announcer, told me that uh, in 2015, after a bad loss in Cincinnati, you uh, – uh, maybe it was Cincinnati. Okay. But you uh, put some uh, really awful disco music on yeah. in the uh, in the team bus because everybody was moping and you right. wanted to change the mood. Right. 
strategy. That that or and I've also you also brought a magician in when magician. you had a five game losing streak into, into the, the the Mets. Yes, but also I, I really like polka music in Detroit too. <laughs> you know, you try you try to play to your audience uh, with the Rays after the couple tough games up there. The guys, you have to walk by the manager's office to go to the bus. Everybody's like dour. So I put on some really <laughs> old school. I mean, you know, being half Pollock, the polka. I could just see Aunt Connie <laughs> dancing with Aunt Henrietta at somebody's wedding as they're all walking out the door to this loud polka music. Listen, it, it, whatever you can do to move the thought to the next thought is really important. If you're just going to sit there and dwell on a negative moment for like, I mean, that's it. Again, what did I learn in clubhouses? So many times, with the Angels, we would lose a game or two, and these guys would just carry that loss into the clubhouse the next night. Really? I mean, this has been 24 hours. You're going to bring that mood from yesterday into today's event? You're going to lose. You're, you're, you're going to do There's no question you're not going to perform up to your abilities. So these are the things that I learned. So polka music, disco on a bus, uh, taking a risk, dressing uncomfortably. One of our themes this year is to be uncomfortable. Yeah, I want to ask you about that. To dress uncomfortably and you walk into a hotel lobby and this is something you would never have done. People are going to stare. I think that has a positive in- impact when you go out and play a game, get in a crucial moment. That uncomfortable situation you went through has is going to play out in a positive way at some point. We're going to take a, a short break. We'll mm-hmm. be back with Joe Madden. You used the word earlier, process. Yeah. Uh, and that's an important word to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have these aphorisms that you put on T-shirts, mm-hmm. uh, and the one that really caught on in 2015 was "Try not to suck." Right. Uh, explain "try not to suck." Well, in, in a major league baseball setting, I promise you, one of the most important things on a daily basis is to not embarrass yourself. It's crazy how that. And again, I've always talked positive, but the negative component is that you really don't want to embarrass yourself. So that really motivates preparation, getting ready, being in the moment, working hard, running hard to first base. You never want to embarrass yourself. So you're trying not to suck constantly. <laughs> and, and, if, and if you really try not to suck, obviously the outcome is going to be better. The other thing in regards to the process, the outcome blows. That may be a T-shirt this year I'm working on also. Why are, where is stress and expectations uh, pertinent in a situation where it become a negative when you're always worried about the outcome? Yeah, you never talk. Uh, one of your uh, one of your coaches told me you never talk about winning. Yeah, <clears throat> and this yeah. is why I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're focused on winning only, I promise you, you're going to screw up a lot more often. If you're more focused on what's happening in this conversation right now, or this at bat, or this pitch. Uh, or this next play, whatever. If you're focused right there, you have a much better chance of fulfilling the goal at hand. If your anxiety lives in the future, that's the, that's the thought. And if you're worried about winning or the outcome, am I doing well? Am I going to go two to two for four? I promise you, it ain't going to happen with any kind of consistency. So, if you could stay in a moment, if you could teach yourself to be more of a pre- be present, not perfect. That's another thing I put on my lineup cards: be present, not perfect. If you could train yourself. And this doesn't happen all the time. I'm not saying that I'm there all the time. I try to be. But if your guys can be in that present tense most of the time, over 90% of the time, and worry about the process, the outcome will take care of itself in a positive way. Let me jump ahead to the World Series. You're down three to one. Mm -hmm. How how do you keep the losing and winning thing out of your head when you're down three to one? Pizza party. Uh, after we got down three to one, my mom was there, my kids were there, my grandkids were there. 
cousins were there, pizza party. So we went back to the apartment, big room, and had a pizza party that night. And everybody was like stressing out. I said, no, I, I, I like uh, the way the pitching's lining up right now. And if we could just get this back to Cleveland, um, Schwerber's available again. So it was about pitching. So I, and, and it's about the faith in your group. So uh, honestly, I'm thinking about it right now as you're saying that or asking that question. Um, pizza party, uh, big homer by KB, and then here comes Chris Schwerber. Bryant, yeah, yeah uh, Chris Bryant. And then, and then back to Cleveland where Schwerber is. Schwerber was kind of an amazing story. You lose him. He's an he's a, a, a <clears throat> incredible hitter. You lose him second, third game of the season. He's supposed to be gone for nine months. Right. And at the last minute, he's <clears throat> available to, to hit in the World Series because he can designate it. He could be a designated right. hitter. Uh, what is it about him that allowed him to, uh, to do what the doctor said wasn't possible? I describe Schwerber by his eyes. Look him in the eye. That's, there's, there's the difference with Schwerber's. He's got this intense... Uh, stare about him. I'm not saying menacing in a, in a negative way, just he's, in, he's intense, intent on the purpose at hand. His eyes all summer. Now, all summer, he comes by me in a dugout at Wrigley. I'm encouraging him, listen, spring training's right around the corner. I'm watching your work. Keep it going. You feel good? Good. Uh, don't worry. It's, it's almost there. But look in his eyes. Whenever you talk to this young man, look in his eyes. And that's it. Uh, that's the window to the soul. His soul is incredible. His spirit is incredible. And that's what sets him apart. That's it. I mean, I don't know, maybe maybe 1%, 2% of the all Major League Baseball players could have done what he did last year. Maybe just one guy could have. It might have just been one. Uh, he's just a different cat. And he was motivated as a young man coming out of college recently to be as accepted by veteran players as he is is really unusual. Uh, not because he's he's got hits, but because of the way he is. So it's is it's because of his eyes and what, what he's got going on inside. That's why I was able to do it. You made some decisions that were pretty <clears throat> controversial relative to pitching, sure, and uh, and <clears throat> how you used Araldus Chapman, your relief pitcher. This goes to sort of how you orient yourself. <clears throat> it must have occurred to you when he gave up this home run. <clears throat> And the game looked like it was slipping away in game seven. You'd taken out Kyle Hendricks. He was pitching well. Mm -hmm. Went to Lester. Went to Chapman. Third day in a row. Or maybe it didn't. Maybe you're – I guess my question is, did you say, shit, I'm going to take a raft of shit for this if this game goes the Uh, other way? Of course, I can't deny that. That did. But it didn't matter because – before the game begins on a, on a nightly basis, I, I, the one thing I do map out is the pitching religiously. Um, that day it was supposed to go from Kyle to John to Chappie. That's, that's the way I had it listed. And um, in my mind's eye, I was working out perfectly uh, up until the home run. And, and everybody's um, you know, was blaming the, the home run on the fact that he pitched so much. The home run was, was the function of location. I mean, if that pitch is up, that kid cannot do that with that pitch. It just happened to be down where he could get to it, down and in. So... Um, I, I didn't. I mean, I knew I would catch a, a boatload if it didn't work well. I knew that even before it happened. Um, but I, I can't worry about stuff like I don't worry about stuff like that. It was just a matter of doing what I perceived to be the right thing to do. Um, again, talking about Gene Mock with Peter Gammons yesterday. Gene, Gene Mock, great old manager, well, Philadelphia best, Phillies, yeah. and yeah. never went never went to the World Series, which is unbelievable. But Gene told me back in the day, play the game three times before, during, and after, and that's what I've done, and that's what I always do. So. 
uh, regardless if you agree or not, whether people agreed or not, it, it really didn't matter to me because, and even with Kyle, I mean, the, the part that, um, that made that whole situation different was that John Lester was available. If John Lester's not available, then of course the to pitch, bridge between Hendricks. Yeah, and I mean, Chapman. then you couldn't. You would have I probably would have left uh, Kyle in longer. But if John Lester's available to pitch to Jason Kipnis in that situation, I think most people would have done the same thing if they really had that opportunity to be in the dugout. So it was supposed to go from Kyle to John to, to Rawlis. It did. Davis hits a home run, uh, but that's where the, the cookie crumbles sometimes. Part of the game mm-hmm. is that you, you it's like politics. Mm-hmm. Millions of people are watching, mm-hmm. all of whom think they can of do course. this better than you. Of course. And uh, you you just live that. with it. I, actually, I love it. I, I do. I mean that sincerely. I think you know we're in the entertainment business, really, at the end of the day. And I'm really confident in what I do and how I do it very confident because it's it's not haphazard it's it's been I've, I've been trained for many years and and I feel I feel good about what I do and how I do it so I promise if you have a question I'm gonna have an answer I'm not just doing it to do it I'm not doing it to upset anybody I'm not doing it to upset <laughs> one of my players or or ameliorate one of my players I'm doing it because I think it's the right thing to do in that moment so and and everybody sees me now nobody has any idea what I've done to get here and, and the work that I've done and the mistakes that I've made or the stuff that I've uh, learned yeah. for years. I mean, and it started right down the street here in, in Mesa on McKellips at Gene Autry Park. That's where I cut my teeth with some, some of the best coaches in the history of this game. So, and, and beyond that, strategically, Don Zimmer, great asset to me for so many years uh, uh, with, with, the, with the Rays. So I encourage the second inning. I love the second inning. I mean that sincerely. Barroom banter, stuff for the media, uh, television, print, whatever. It's part of what we do. Well, and the reality is that you can make the right decision and get the wrong result. Of course. Just because it didn't work out properly does not mean it was incorrect. Let's look, look, just moving forward. Okay. What are the, Last season, the challenge was to focus everyone on winning the World Series. The, right. the pressure was 108 years. Uh, you were able to overcome that. It seems like there's a new challenge here. Very hard to repeat. History suggests very hard to repeat. And part of it is people do get comfortable. You're every, everywhere you go, people are buying you drinks. You're, you, you know, you, there are all kinds of things that go right. on in the off-season, short off-season. Right. Uh, so how do you combat that? We just said, man, that to be uncomfortable, that's going to be one of the T-shirts coming out. You combat that by talking about it. How do you combat pressure and expectations? By talking about it. I've, I've talked about my Jack Ryan approach, uh, uh, Clear and Present Danger. Tom Clancy, I used to read all of his stuff. Jack Ryan in Clear and Present Danger was confronted with that moment where there was a drug bust or a drug deal gone badly in the Caribbean, and the dude on the boat was a good friend of the President of the United States at that time, and all the spin doctors wanted to say, Mr. President, you got to distance yourself. You didn't even hardly knew the guy. You know, walk away from this, et cetera. But Jack said, no, Mr. President. He was not only a friend, he's one of your best friends. And that's always resonated with me. So you run towards the issue of the problem. You don't run away from it. The best way to disarm it is to do that. So that was that was the expectations and pressure. There goes my bag. Pressure and expectations thought from last year. And this year, I want our guys to be uncomfortable, meaning um, I, 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 you really want to avoid the potential for complacency. So if you're, if you're uncomfortable, growth continues. If you're comfortable, growth diminishes. So I really want to emphasize that thought among our guys. You put a t-shirt out there, guys walk around with it on constantly, so the message is constantly given to them. So 
What is it about this group? Because as I walk around here, people mm-hmm. say, you know what? We, they don't seem complacent. Right. What is it about this group of kids? And they are kids. I mean, yeah. we, we remind – you got to remind yourself all the time. These are young kids. And uh, what is it about this group of kids that uh, that gives them the ability to handle – what a lot of other teams have found difficult to handle. To this point, they've been raised properly. They've not been raised by wolves. That's what I get with this. <laughs> I mean, whether it comes from their parents or professionally, their coaches, their mentors to this point, and the locker room last year. The veterans in this group are spectacular. And the veterans in this group are all winners. So you could be, you could have veterans or the term leadership applied to your group, and it could be the absolute worst thing because these guys are leading you down the wrong path. Our lead bulls lead us down the proper path. And so it's a combination of where they came from, scouting and development, really recognize and produce them well, and the group that Theo and Jed and the Ricketts family have presented to our players here, the, the veteran group, are the exact right group to carry on the, the proper message. What about you? You, you've got a, you signed a five-year contract when <clears> you came here. As I mentioned earlier, you are a guy who likes to jump in his RV with mm-hmm. your wife, yeah. Jay, and, and, and travel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, clearly baseball is really important to you, but not the only thing. Right. Uh, is, is there a point at which you say, I've done everything I want to do in this game? I don't know. I mean, I've, I've not had that thought yet. Um, in a sense, I think um, – my biggest concern right now, again, being present tense, is that taking care of the 2017 team in regard to that um, remaining contemporary in my methods, methods of thinking, uh, remaining um, working out, eating properly, getting my rest. Those are the important things to me right now. If I do that, then I think I could do an equally good job again this year. And if that's the case, again, try to repeat that next year. So I, I don't get caught in that trap again of, oh, when this contract runs out, what are you going to do next? You know, I, I feel like I have uh, employment uh, security. Yeah, you know, I would job, say so. You know, not job security. Job security indicates the the, the 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 manager of the Cubs. Employment security would be industry wide. And I think you know what I've done to this point. I feel good about whatever I choose to do in the coming years. I'll be able to do so. Right now, damn, focus right here. If you if you focus on this right now, it's going to turn out well, and that other stuff takes care of itself. I want to talk to you about Hazleton again, sure. Thank Let, you. Uh, uh, the Hazleton <clears throat> Integration Project, which is something that you've poured yourself into. Explain what that is and, and, and what Hazleton is today. It's going great, actually. Hazleton Integration Project is something that was born in 2010, I think it was. I go home to Christmas for Christmas on an annual basis. I went home right around 2010, and I was really upset. The town was dark. It was... Uh, uh, there was an abject lack of trust. There was no trust whatsoever in the city. A real conflict among the new members, which were the Latin community, the Hispanic community, primarily Dominican, and the Anglo group that had been there for 100 years, whatever. <clears throat> when I say dark, I mean even the streets were dark. I, I, there's nothing I liked about it. The sidewalks were broken. The infrastructure was horrible. Nobody trusted one another. And uh, crime was spiking. Drugs were Part of it has to do with the, the coal industry. <clears throat> yeah. Was on the, uh, was the coal on the industry country. was on, on is on a decline or was on a decline, and we had a couple um, <clears throat> excuse me um, fa- um, distribution centers Amazon cargo meat packing whatever uh, low skill kind of jobs so that was Hazleton used to be booming coal down to about twenty five thousand almost fifty percent Hispanic when I grew up it was zero percent I mean absolutely there was one black kid in town when I was growing up 
in, in the 60s and the 70s. So I get back there. I, I saw this. I didn't like it. So I get home back to California. I call my cousin, Bob and Elaine, along with my wife, Jay. And I said, we got to do something about this. While I was there, I went to a, a daycare center of Hispanic uh, folk after uh, after a uh, church on a Sunday at like 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And quickly, I'm trying to be quick with this, but uh, they're sitting around a, a low-set table, potluck dinner, lunch, the grown-ups with like some kind of like sangria, would drink, whatever, but the kids are running around crazy in this in this house. And I thought to myself, this is exactly what we used to look like back in the 60s and 50s uh, growing up. And I'm saying, well, there's a... This is who we were. This is who these people are now. And we're pushing these folks away. And they're, they're the Italians and the Polish and the Slovaks and the Irish that settled this community in the 1910s, 20s, 30s. So how do we bring this together? Talking to the people in, the, in, the, in that daycare center that day, the big problem was after school. Where do these kids go after school while these, while these folks are working? And that's where all the problems were occurring. So the community center... We, we wanted to develop would be a natural place for the kids to go afterwards, get, get help with their homework, a place for them to go to, the parents to pick them up after they're done working. That was the primary thought. So we buy Most Precious Blood uh, School, parochial school. There were 25 classes, big gym, big cafeteria. All this stuff is right there in the middle of all this action. We purchase this building, volunteers. We hire a minuscule staff. But now all of a sudden, these kids have somewhere to go at the end of the day. We've had so much contributions from the state of Pennsylvania, Ripken Foundation, um, uh, all these other fellows that have helped out. We've raised money on our own. And now this building is thriving. Penn State University is a part of our group. Temple University is part of our after-school program. We're becoming a national model. And it continues to grow and expand. And now, all of a sudden, the people that were pushing away back in the day are now coming on board and they're seeing why it's so important to cohabitate in this manner. Our original goal was to nail it down in Hazleton and hopefully then help the uh, surrounding uh, burgs or burbs around Hazleton in the upcoming years. And that's what's happening right now, too. So started with a thought, became the Hazleton um, Integration Project. Now we have the Hazleton One Community Center. We have our own staff, and it's becoming uh, seriously a national model. I want to draw you into into, uh, politics, but... There's been obviously a lot of back and forth about sure. I- immigrants yeah. uh, now. Have you sense has that impacted Hazleton? Is there a sense of unease about what's going on? Well, that's that was the beginning in like the 2006, 7, 8, uh, You know, Mayor Barletta, Louis, now a congressman. He's, mm-hmm. he's, he's, he's there in Washington right now. But Louis and that group at that time uh, was really um, creating legislation against illegal immigrants to the point where it became a national issue. And, and, the, and the term illegal immigrant was really um, very prominent in Hazleton. If you rented to a li- illegal immigrant, you would uh, be fined a certain amount of money. And there was all other kind of little um, other mini li- legislation that was created. And, and that really created a lot of, of the divide. And also uh, there was a, a spike in crime at that point, which was solely uh, attributable attributed to the Latino community, which was not – Correct, but was so. It was all this little stuff. So you're going, concerned about what's going on now, the sort of environment out there now, the political environment. Of course, absolutely. I mean, I'm, and and I am concerned about that. But I also believe what we started in Hazleton, like I'm saying, can become a model of how to solve this. Now, 
it was pointed out by a Monsignor to me uh, from Wilkes-Barre that Hazleton was the perfect situation to do this in. It was a finite area. It's just a finite small town that you can experiment with, almost like the devil rays back in the day, mm-hmm. right? So you have, this, you have this little town that you could, okay, we're going to get together and create a community center with all these after-school programs, and we're going to try to... It's open to everybody, but primarily the Hispanic kids came in and Hispanic uh, grown-ups. We have... Um, English-Spanish classes, Spanish-English classes. But we started doing this, and there was like, why are you doing that, Joey? You know, you're not one of us anymore, Joey. Why would you ever want to take care of these people, Joey? That's what I'm hearing back home. But now, with with everything that's been going on, and when these people come and visit our kids, who speak much better English than most native Hazeltonians, and they come in our, in our, in our, in our building now, and all of a sudden they see how wonderful these people are, and then they realize, finally, the connection's being made. They're just like we were growing up. And this is this, we're, we have this oppor- unique opportunity right now to really relive history. This is what the country was like, and you used to sit and, and listen to grandparents talk about it. You would like romanticize, oh, how cool was that? And now you have this opportunity to actually relive it, and we're pushing back and saying, no, we don't want this. So, I mean, to, to um, designation, illegal immigrant, illegal immigrant, whatever, I, I'm not concerned about that. The people that are here, I'm concerned about taking care of and, and making this whole thing work. Now, I, I, I can't, I'm, I'm not smart enough to know all that other stuff, but I do know in my hometown, it's very important to me that my hometown prospers and thrives. It was the best place ever to grow up. I want it to be that same way for the kids that are growing up there now. So for me to not get involved and, I, and then to wish for something like that, it's a ridiculous concept. So... We're involved. My family's involved. My wife and I are involved. So if we could take care of Hazleton, if everybody could take care of where they came from, kind of, and, and the folks that have left, come on back. Come on back from where you're from and try to help that group get back on its feet. I think just without this um, worrying about definition so much mm-hmm. and worrying about actual people, I think we could all, if we all do our, our part, it took us, this is what, 2017? It's taken about five solid years of this stuff to really get this town going in the right direction. And I think if we, if we all considered that and everybody took care of their own little pocket, you'd see a dramatic improvement in five to ten years. Well, uh, <clears throat> everyone who's listening to this podcast should know they can go online and uh, to the Hazleton Integration right. Project and uh, donate to it. Please. As you point yeah. out, it's a model for uh, what communities across the country could and and should be doing mm-hmm. and congratulations on that's uh, in in many ways bigger than even winning a world series well i appreciate you asking that question because it is to me i mean it's uh you know when I, like i said when i go back there listen these people took care of me and they, they gave me this opportunity to do what i'm doing right now and for the kids there now not to have that same kind of op- it's about the kids man so listen put your ego in your back pocket it's about the kids Stop worrying about you so much and worry about your children a little bit more. And if we do that, this thing can work again. Joe Madden, thank you for this, and thanks for bringing to Chicago what we waited 108 years for. I appreciate it, sir. And it's so, uh, so such an honor to be sitting here with you like this right now, and I appreciate that very much. Dinner with our wives has to be forthcoming Absolutely. very soon. But to the people of Chicago, man, uh, thank you so much for, for, uh, for including me. I mean that sincerely. Yeah. Well— right back at you from them. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast. 
and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.